morning again, Coastal Church. I want to invite you to grab a Bible and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37 is where we're going to spend the majority of our time in God's Word this morning. And as you're turning there, let me recap just real quick for those of you who might have missed last week. We are taking the first three Sundays in January to re-examine re-solidify to inspect our foundation. Remember, last week I closed with a story from Architecture 101. If our foundation is not secure, if our foundation isn't steadfast, then whatever we build on top of it isn't going to last. And the Christian life works the same way. God has given us as a church and God has given us as individual Christians anchors foundations upon which we build our lives, anchors that will hold us up in the shifting winds of culture and uncertainty. I mean, think about it. If you were in town this past week, uh, help me out. What happened on Tuesday night? Anyone remember what happened on Tuesday night? Anyone lose power on Tuesday night? Hopefully not too many of you. Okay, there were 60 mile an hour winds all over Williamsburg. And on nights like that, I, I trust that we are grateful for sure foundations that make sure that our homes won't be swept away. Because the foundations are sure, it means that we won't move. And that's really, church, what we're getting at this week. God has given us anchors to build our lives on. And we saw last Sunday that our ultimate foundation, our ultimate anchor is Jesus Christ, Jesus and his gospel. We don't ever move beyond that anchor. We don't graduate from Christ or the gospel. Everything we do is gospel-centered. The gospel is who we are. The gospel is what we believe. And so before I move on this morning, I want to make sure that we know what I'm talking about. And so let's walk through it. What is the gospel? At Coastal, we try to say this almost every week, but from 1 Corinthians 15, the Bible gives us three core facts of the gospel. Number one, Jesus is what? What? Jesus is what? God. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross for our what? Sin. And then Jesus bodily rose from the dead. Jesus is God. Jesus died on the cross for our sin. And then Jesus bodily rose from the dead. And the Bible also tells us what we do with the gospel. What do we do with the gospel? We repent of our sin, believe in the message of the gospel that Jesus is God. He died on the cross for our sin, bodily rose from the dead, and then we receive Christ into our lives. Now, with that established, for the next two weeks, we're going to look at two different aspects of that foundation. If Jesus and his gospel is our foundation, we're going to explore that a little bit for two weeks. We're going to look at, one, what Jesus said, his word and two, what Jesus cares about, his church. Because God has given us this giant anchor that is Christ himself. And if we care about Christ as our anchor, we want to care about what he said and what he cares about. And so we'll cover the church next week. And next Sunday's message is going to be pretty practical. I want to really offer and share with us where we've been over the last six months, where we are now, and Lord willing, where we'll go. But today, my hope is to spend some time looking at the power and the authority and the miracle-working nature of God's Word, and how as individual Christians and as a church, we can build our lives on the authority that is the Word of God. It's a foundation for us. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27. I think we'll have it on the screen. Jesus himself put it this way. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. What is Jesus saying here? He's exhorting us to be wise men, wise men and women who build our houses on the rock who build our houses, our foundations on the rock and the authority of his word. His word is the thing that doesn't shift. It doesn't change. It can always be counted on. And this can't be said, church, of anything else in our lives. Our favorite news outlets will shift. Our relationships will shift. Our parenting strategies will shift. Even our families, sometimes they shift, but the word of God never will. It doesn't move. And so here's my plan this morning. We're going to look at a story in Ezekiel 37 from the Old Testament, a miraculous story that is going to show us how exactly God's word is powerful and how it offers us a foundation and an anchor for our lives. We'll see its power to save us, its power to guide us, and ultimately how it serves to show us more and more of Christ himself. So let me read it, Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 through 14. I'm going to pray, and then we will pull out, Lord willing, three reasons why we as Christians and we as the church want to build our lives this year on the authority of the word of God. So Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14, this is God's word. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and I shall cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord." And so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Verse 9, and then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I'll bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you. You shall live, and I'll place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Let's pray. 
Father, we want to approach your word with care and humility this morning. God, your word is our standard and our authority. And as we'll see, even in this text, we want to be a people that submit our lives to it. And so, Father, I pray that for the next few minutes, that would be our heart posture, one of submission, where we come to the Bible not as judge, but we come to have our lives laid bare, Lord, that what you say is good and true. Your word is truth. And we declare that and believe it this morning. And so, Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help me to preach and that you would build up your church. That's what you've been doing for 2,000 years, God. And so it's really awesome to be together getting to do it this morning. Bless this time. And as always, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. Amen. All right, so Ezekiel 37. This is one of the wildest, most miraculous stories in the entire Bible. It almost reads out of Lord of the Rings. Here's what's going on. Ezekiel was written sometime between 593 and 565 BC during the time when Israel was in exile in Babylon. If you were with us, church, last fall, you remember we spent eight weeks walking through Nehemiah. So Nehemiah was written just after the Israelites returned from exile. Ezekiel's ministry took place when God's people were in exile. And we see in verse 12, you can look down at the text, that God promises in this passage to bring his people back to their own land, a promise that was ultimately fulfilled through the life and the leadership of Nehemiah. I just want to help us get a timeline here. So contextually, this story is about God bringing new life to his people in a pretty miraculous way. And it's specifically referring to the nation of Israel. But as we'll see, there are some pretty clear parallels for us as a church today. So let's walk through. Let me summarize just real quick. The chapter opens and God brings the prophet Ezekiel to this valley. We don't know where the valley is, but the valley has dry bones in it. Bones that were dried out by the sun that had been there for a long time. And God walks him around this valley and then asks him a question that almost seems ridiculous in verse three. Son of man, can these bones live? In other words, he's asking Ezekiel, can dead things come to life? Now, Ezekiel knows the obvious human answer. He's walked around and he's seen zero life in these bones. These aren't hurt bones or broken bones or even sinful bones. These are dead, dry bones. They're not coming back to life. But Ezekiel also knows the miracle-working power of God. And so he answers, again, verse 3 says this, Oh, Lord God, you know. I think there's an underlying acknowledgement in his response here. He's almost saying, God, if these bones are going to live, if dead things are going to come to life, only you know, and only you are the one can make it happen. And this is exactly what God does. We just read it. First, God tells him to prophesy over the bones, really to preach to the bones. Look at verse four. Oh, bones, hear the word of the Lord. Church, this proclamation, hear the word of the Lord, is preaching. It's preaching, exhorting people, exhorting bones to hear the word of the Lord. And so Ezekiel looks out over this valley of dry bones and he preaches. And then after he preaches, then comes the miracle. The bones start to come together. First, they rattle. 
And then they grow, muscle grows, and skin comes together, and all of a sudden what was once dry is now dry no longer. Before him is an army of people, yet there's still no life in them. And God then gives Ezekiel a second command. Look at verse 9. Prophesied to the breath. We're going to unpack what this means in a minute. But when he does, when Ezekiel obeys this second command, we see the miracle completed in verse 10. Breath comes into the people, and they live, and they stood on their feet, this exceedingly great army. Listen, I, I want us to grasp the enormity of this. What was two minutes prior, a valley full of death, a valley full of dry bones, God had turned into a valley full of life. A living, breathing army, an army that, as we'll see in a minute, was now ready to obey the commands of the Lord. It's a stunning, it's a miracle. One of the wildest stories in the entire Bible. So I think it begs the question, what in the world does this story have to do with us? Like here in Williamsburg, Virginia, in 2024, this story happened 2,500 years ago on the other side of the world. How Does it impact our lives today? Furthermore, think back to the beginning of our time. How does it show us the power of God's word and why should it convince us to build our lives on that power and on that authority? What does it have to do with us? I'm glad you asked. Number one, look in your notes. It shows us, church, that the word gives new life. It shows us that the word gives new life. Now, I think to fully understand this, we first need to see that left to our own devices, by ourselves, apart from Christ, we need new life. I think one of the biggest, most dangerous lies in our culture today, I've heard this time and time again, is that all it takes to get into heaven is to be a good person, that good people get to go to heaven. But in reality, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible actually teaches that no one is good enough to get into heaven and that people, all of us, we don't exist on this spectrum of goodness with some of us being really good and some of us really bad. Rather, the scriptures, the Bible actually tells us that people are either spiritually dead in their sin or spiritually alive in Christ. And the only ones who can look forward to the hope of heaven are those who have trusted in Christ, who have become alive in Christ, those who have trusted and believed in the gospel that we went over at the beginning of our time. So understand this. We aren't bad or good. We are dead or alive. We see that all over the Bible. Ephesians 2 makes it really, really clear. Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Again, like the bones, we're not broken or sick. We're dead, dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins. Spiritual death is our default condition. And so in reality, every single person in this room before Christ, we look just like the dry bones in Ezekiel 37. There's no life in dry bones. There's just death. But by God's grace, for the Christians in the room this morning, just like the dry bones, God didn't leave us dead in our sin. Ephesians 2 continues this thought in verse 4. But God, probably my two favorite words in the entire Bible, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, there's that word again, dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Listen, here's what I want us to see. This, your salvation, God making you alive with Christ, as he talks about in verse 5, is just as astonishing a miracle as God resurrecting dry bones from Ezekiel 37. God has made us alive. He's redeemed us. We sang about it this morning. He's canceled the record of debt against us, nailing that debt to the cross in the person and the work of Jesus. And because of the work of Jesus, we're no longer in debt. We are freed and forgiven. We are alive in Christ. The saints say amen. Amen. It's good news for us. Now, how did he accomplish this? How did God bring us from death to life? Church, he did it the same way he raised up the army in our text this morning. God brought about life through preaching. He brought about life through the preaching of his word. The first step in my salvation, and if you're in Christ this morning, the first step in your salvation can be found in Ezekiel 37 verse 4. Look back at our text. Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Like there was a moment for you, whether it was in a gathering like this, in a church or with your parents in the living room when you were a kid or in your your dorm room with your college roommate, when someone explained to you the word of the Lord, when you heard God's word, the gospel of Jesus, and you believed it, you repented of your sin, believed in the gospel, and you received Christ. To God be the glory for that moment. If you're in Christ this morning, you were saved because you heard the word of the Lord. But listen, church, here's the thing. Not everyone who hears the word of the Lord is saved. Not everyone who hears the word of the Lord is resurrected. Not everyone who hears the word of the Lord is made alive in Christ. Let me be bold for a second. Not everyone in this gathering who hears the word of the Lord is saved. And we know this, I think from experience, every Christian has had a time where you explain the gospel to someone and for whatever reason, they rejected it. They didn't believe it. So what does this tell us? It tells us, church, that preaching by itself, while able to bring about signs of life, isn't sufficient to fully generate new life. We see this in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel preaches to the bones, and then look at verse 8. They've joined together. They've still got muscle and skin. They look like real people now, but they're still not alive. Verse 8 tells us there was no breath in them. They look alive. They look real, but they're not real. Let me put it another way. Maybe this will help. This will probably date myself a little bit, but one of my kids' favorite movies is the Disney movie Ratatouille. Anyone seen the movie Ratatouille? All right, if you're older and you don't have young kids, I can explain it to you real quick. It actually, the premise sounds like a horror movie. There's a rat that sits on top of someone's head and controls their arms and legs. That's the premise to Ratatouille. And what's wild about it is this animated kids movie, and it's this rat who uh, meets this guy in Paris at this fancy restaurant named Alfredo. The guy's name is Alfredo Linguini, which is kind of a funny name. Um, And they figure out that this guy, he's a garbage boy in this fancy restaurant. The rat can sit on top of his head and pull his hair. And when he pulls his hair a certain way, his arms and his legs move. Again, does that not sound like a horror movie? To to me, it kind of does. Anyway, anyway, it's a kids movie, PG, all good. Um, I thought about Weekend at Bernie's. That's not PG. I'm going to keep it to Ratatouille. So at Ratatouille, what happens 
is the movie progresses and they figure out that this partnership is actually pretty effective. The garbage boy goes from being a garbage boy to starting to create these culinary miracles. Like everyone starts to love this guy's food. He becomes famous. Like reporters are coming to check out his restaurant. He's getting all the stars. Everything's real good for him. There's even one scene though, which is evidence that he's not the one doing the real work, where he's asleep and the rat is operating his arms and legs while he's asleep. And so while this garbage boy is getting all the attention, all the fame, all the renown, he's not the one who's operating the kitchen. It's the rat. Now, here's what's interesting about this is that Linguini, the garbage boy, he looks like a chef. He's got all the outfit. He's got all the language. He, he talks like a chef. He even cooks like a chef. He's got the signs of life like he's a chef, but he's not a chef. He's not really a chef. It looks real, but it's not real. And, and this is where we are, church, in the valley right now. The dry bones are gone. There aren't any dry bones anymore. They're joined together and they're covered by skin. They look alive, but they're not alive. And the preaching of the word has done this. It's cleaned up the scene, creating something that looks like life. But I'll be real honest this morning. As a pastor, this scene in Ezekiel 37 is a pretty scary thought. Not because Ezekiel's got a bunch of dead bodies lying around, but because it tells us that it's possible for preaching to create people who look real on the outside, but in the inside are dead. Like preaching brought that about. Track with me here. We see in Ezekiel 37, preaching can stir up morality. Preaching can inspire people. Preaching can make people want to clean up their lives. Preaching can make people try harder. Preaching for a time can make people better husbands and wives. Preaching can make us better parents. Preaching can make us kinder to our families. I think good preaching can create people who look and walk and talk like Christians. But I think we see this in this passage. Preaching alone has no power to actually bring about life. It needs something else. It needs another element. So look at verse 9. God shows Ezekiel and he shows us another stage in this miracle. Ezekiel prophesied to the breath. Tell the breath, the wind, to breathe on these bodies that they may live. Now, what's going on here? It can be a little bit confusing. So we're going to put our theologian hats on just for a second. I promise this is going to get really good. The word breath here in verse 9 is the Hebrew word ruach. Elsewhere in the Bible, it's translated as breath, like we see it here, wind and spirit. It's the same word that we see in Genesis chapter 1 when the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters at creation. It's the same word that Jesus used when he's talking to Nicodemus in John 3 about how the wind blows where it wishes in the context of being born again. This ruach, this spirit breath, all throughout the Bible is the one who gives life the one who creates life. That's who Ezekiel is calling on. And so in our passage today, church, Ezekiel is really doing two different things. He's first preaching to the bones, and then he's prophesying to the breath, which coastal means he's praying. He's praying. He's imploring the Spirit. Spirit, you are the giver of life, so breathe life into these bones. And then as soon as the Spirit gets involved, it's game over. Verse 10, breath comes into the bodies, and they stand up on their feet, and they live. What preaching alone failed to accomplish, prayer turned into a reality. 
Now, here's how this hits home for us, church. Spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel, both on an individual and corporate level, preaching fueled by the power of prayer is the means that God uses to bring dead people back to life. We need both, the preached word and the spirit of God. And when both happen, God uses his word to create real and genuine life. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This means that for us as a church and for us as individual Christians, we're going to throw all of our effort behind doing two things when it comes to spreading the gospel. We're going to preach our hearts out both here on Sunday mornings and individually throughout our lives. And we're going to pray with passion that the spirit of God would move and bring life. We need both. And honestly, I can't imagine it any other way. I mean, imagine being with Ezekiel in this valley. Put yourself in this valley just for a second, walking around and looking at the dry bones with Ezekiel and saying to Ezekiel, you know what these dry bones need? You know what I really think these dry bones would make them come alive? A youth ministry. Better lighting. Stronger coffee. More hymns. Less hymns. Whatever it is. We need these little things that we do as a church that are good things, But maybe if we do them, if we do them right, if we line them up right enough, then God will breathe life into the bones. No, church, those are all good things and helpful things. But here at Coastal, we're going to preach and pray and trust that God in his grace will bring people to himself, that he will bless both the public and the personal preaching of the gospel. That is our growth strategy here at this church. That's how we're trusting that God is going to save sinners because that is what God has done for thousands of years. And this strategy impacts everything. It impacts our parenting. And parents, in case you haven't noticed, you cannot save your kids. You can't do it. And and don't get me wrong, you can preach to them and You can set up biblical boundaries and guidelines for them. You can teach them the things of God and you do that and you want to do that. We should do that. But we've seen that unless God supernaturally blesses the personal preaching of his word in our families, our kids' hearts aren't changed. It's just behavior modification until the spirit lights the flame and saves our kids. Think about this in your marriage. In a struggling marriage, you can do all of the conflict resolution you want. You can set all the right boundaries and priorities and biblical principles in place, but unless the Spirit of God moves in your marriage to create heart change, there won't be real change. And listen, maybe maybe some of y'all have been in this building and in buildings like it for 20 years, and you've heard preaching for 20 years, and Because of preaching, your life is now cleaned up. You look like a Christian. You're faithful in your marriage, and you don't cuss, and you don't drink too much, and you do all the things you think Christians do. You look like a good Christian. But if you were honest with yourself, all that preaching has done for you in 20 years has just cleaned up your life. There's no heart change. And you realize you've never been made new in Christ. The, the Holy Spirit rock breath has never hit you. And if that's you this morning and you're realizing that, then join me and pray. Pray and ask the living God to move in your heart that you might see the glory and the beauty of Jesus. He can do that because the Spirit of God creates life. The Word of God creates life. So number one, the word brings life. Number two, got to pick up the pace. The word guides redeemed life. 
we're going to hit these next two pretty quickly. The word guides redeemed life. So after this grave robbing miracle, Ezekiel prophesies again, this time to give instruction. Look at verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. We sang that this morning. Praise God for that miracle. Now here's what God's going to do. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. So God's word has raised them. Now God's word tells them what's coming next. They will be brought back into the land of Israel. Now, again, remember our time in Nehemiah this fall. God does this through Nehemiah. But here's the principle for us. God's word isn't just the means that God uses to bring about salvation, to bring about new life. It's also the means that God uses for our sanctification, the process of guiding our redeemed lives into greater conformity to Christ. It does both. God's word saves us and God's word sanctifies us. 2 Timothy chapter 3 makes this connection really, really clear. Verses 14 through 17. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So track with me here. First, the word of God, the scriptures, have made him wise for salvation. They, they made him wise to save him. And now verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching Reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So hear me, scripture offers us enough to save us and it offers us enough to complete us, to be fully equipped for living the Christian life. Now here's what this means for us, brothers and sisters, in order to actually grow in godliness, in order for us as a church and individually to progress in following Jesus, we need to be a people who are regularly reading and studying and meditating on God's word. And we want to be a people who are regularly sitting under the preaching of God's word. Because every single Christian, including myself, needs the regular teaching, reproving, correcting, and training that the Bible offers. We have short-term memories, which is why gathering together on a weekly basis like we do as a church is so critical. It's a weekly reset. It's a check on our lives. It's then meant to be carried and supplemented by our own individual times in the word throughout the week. Listen, we talked about this at the beginning of our time. If Christ is to be the anchor of our lives, then what Christ says, his word needs to matter to us. It needs to guide and shape how we live. It needs to be our authority and the standard that we submit our lives to. All of his word, every page of his word, which means, Christians, you don't get to and I don't get to pick and choose what parts of the Bible we submit our lives to. It's a dangerous temptation we face because as soon as we start picking and choosing, the Bible ceases to become the authority and we become the authority. We become the judge over the word, which is a really dangerous place to be. And that means that when the Bible says that God's design for sex is in the covenant confines of marriage between one man and one woman, and all other sexual activity outside of those confines is considered sin, then we look at the Bible and we submit our lives to God's design. This means that when God said he created us male and female to distinct and separate genders 
For our good and for his glory, we submit to his design. God doesn't make mistakes. This means that when the Bible outlines the concept of giving, which is a generous and joyful and sacrificial tithe, we submit to it. And we do all of this because his word is our standard and given for our good. And when we read it and study it and listen to it preached, God uses it to guide and conform our lives to his son, Jesus. All right, finally, number three. The word shows us the author of life. So God's word, God's word brings new life. God's word guides redeemed life. And then I think best of all, God's word shows us the author of life. Let's finish out our passage, verses 13 and 14. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open up your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. So after the army has been resurrected and guided back into their own land, they will then know that he is the Lord. And they'll know that because his spirit will dwell within them. Listen, the chief end of God's word is that it shows us more of and it brings us closer to God himself. That's the end result of Ezekiel 37. The people weren't resurrected for no reason. They were resurrected, the Bible tells us, so that they might know the Lord. We don't read and love and listen to the Bible to get more of the Bible or even to learn more about ourselves. We get it and we read it to learn more of God, to see more of God. And I think this is where sometimes we go astray. And I've been there in different seasons in my life when we read the Bible with a man-centered lens, either to build up knowledge or seeing it as a story about ourselves. Listen, church, from cover to cover, the Bible is one story and God is its main character. The entire Bible is about God and how God is making himself known. It's not about us. The Bible's not about you. Let me explain it maybe another way. I was talking to a, a brother, a member of our congregation um, yesterday, and he actually said I could use his name. So Brett Smith's sitting right back there. Uh, tell you all a story about Brett. So Brett uh, is a celebrity in our presence because Brett is an actor. Um, Brett has been an extra on a TV show. Now, if you know what extras are, they're the people in the crowds or running from the disaster scene. Sometimes shows or movies will, will do these wide-ranging casting calls where you can apply and go down to their filming location and you can be a part of the movie or the show. Now, Brett was in a couple episodes of a show that I probably shouldn't talk about from the pulpit, so I'll just rhyme it. He was in a show called The Talking Bread. And Brett was in this show, a couple episodes, um, which is awesome, like really, really cool experience. Um, I'm glad it was a good experience for him. But, but imagine with me for a second, imagine with me for a second that Brett said to his friends and family, hey, everyone, I'm the star of this new show. And I want to invite all my friends and family to come to my house and to watch as the episode about me debuts. It'd be awesome, right? Like all of his friends and family would be really, really excited. We'd all come over to Brett's house, popcorn, soda, everything. We'd sit down in front of the TV to watch Brett's show, the star or the show that Brett is the star of. And then we, we turn on the show. It's a 45-minute episode. And 10 minutes in, there's no Brett. And 20 minutes in, there's no Brett. 30 minutes in, we're sitting there thinking, Brett told us this was his show. I haven't seen Brett yet. And then all of a sudden, real quick, Brett grabs their money, pauses it. And they're in the corner of the screen, 
is the back of his head for like two seconds. And he's not even one of the extras that gets eaten by the zombies. He's one of the extras that's in the crowd. Would you think in that moment that the show is about Brett? No, it's ridiculous, right? The show's not about Brett. Brett's not the main character. Listen, church, the Bible is the same way. The Bible is about God. God is both its author and its subject. And one of the best gifts that the Bible offers us is it offers us a way to know and behold our God. When we spend time dwelling in its pages, we spend time beholding the God who wrote it. And God uses that time to fuel our sanctification, our growth in Jesus Christ. So listen, maybe I'll wrap up this way. We are extras in God's story. We got 0.2 seconds at the back of our heads. And as Christians, it's then our job to leverage every single second we have on stage to glorify the author of the show. And one of the best ways we can do that one of the best ways we can do that is by anchoring our lives on the foundation of his word. The word of God, church, is gonna be everything for us in 2024. The word of God brings new life. The word guides redeemed life. We need it. We need it. It comforts us. It challenges us. It encourages us. It corrects us. And the word of God, the best thing about the word of God is that it brings us to the author of the book himself, God himself. Amen? Amen. All right, I'm going to invite our band up. We're going to close in song. I want to invite our prayer team up to church. Um, we've been doing this lately. I will have a prayer team on both sides of me. Here's why we do that. I want to explain that. If you're here today and you need prayer, if you need someone to pray over you, it could be nothing to do with our sermon time. Come and get prayer. We don't want you to come into this church family, especially as a newcomer, with a need and to not get prayed over. So please come talk to us. Let us pray with you. We'd love uh, to, to really encourage you in that way. Here's, here's how I'll close our time this morning. As you get ready to leave today, at the doors, you will be handed one of these. This is a Bible reading plan. It's the one that I use myself, and it's one that I love. It's, it's put together by the Navigators, and I'll explain it just real, real briefly. It's got 25 readings a month, and through the month, you get five catch-up days. It covers Genesis to Revelation. If we want to be a church that grounds ourselves, that founds ourselves, that anchors ourselves on the word of God, we have to be people in the word. And so I wanted to close our sermon time today real practically. We're going to put this in every single one of your hands. And you're not going to offend me. If you already have a Bible reading plan, you could throw it away. Just don't do it so I can see it, but throw it away somewhere else. But really, if you don't have a reading plan, if you don't have a systematic way of reading through the scriptures, consider using this. I use it. And I'll be with you all year. I'd love to talk to you about what God is showing you in his word. There's power in the written word, and there's power when we read God's word. So you'll, you'll get one of these as we leave. Um, and I'll say this. I have never met a mature, vibrant, growing Christian whose life is not grounded on the word of God. And so church, let us be people in 2024 that make a commitment to reading and studying and knowing God's word again. It's the vehicle through which God brings life. It's the vehicle through which God guides our Christian lives and it shows us the author of life. So let's do this. Let me pray and then we'll go out of here singing and we'll enjoy our week. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning grateful for your written authoritative word. It's an incredible story we got to see this morning. God, how you turn dry bones into armies, Lord, how you bring resurrection, God, how your word did it, the spirit and the word. It's just incredible, God, to see who you are and what you do and what you say. And so Christ, as we look at you today as the anchor of our lives, I pray that for all of us in this room, we would be 
encouraged and challenged to anchor our lives on the word of God as our standard. We want to begin every single sermon at this church with grab a Bible and turn to blank. Because it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what culture says. It matters, God, what you say. And so you are our authority. You're the author of life. And God, you're the one who we joyfully submit our lives to today. And so, Father, I pray for this sweet local church, God. I pray for the one that doesn't have a Bible reading plan. Something as simple as that, God. I pray that this would be an encouragement to them today. And I pray that they would start a new discipline this year of daily time in the word of God. I I pray and I praise you. I know there are saints in this room who have been reading the Bible cover to cover for longer than I've been alive. It's awe-inspiring and humbling, God. And so I praise you for them, Lord Jesus. There are some wise brothers and sisters in this room who are competent and skilled in the scriptures that are still being mastered by the Bible. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your time and your word this morning. I pray, God, that as we worship you through song, as we leave here, our lives, our lives would be an offering. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.